This is the Brewing Network's Brewing with Style, hosted by Jamil Zanishev and Mike Tasty McDole, along with special guest Jonathan Plise. Now, here's Jamil. Hey, howdy, hey, my Bruin brothers and sisters. <laughs> There's one brother and one sister. Another <laughs> one sister. And we're hanging here at NHC 2015 in San Diego, uh, home of uh, White Labs. Yeah. 20 years for White Labs. Yeah. 20 years. Whitey, congratulations. That's a, that's a whole lot Thank of cells, you. huh? Yeah, a lot of cells, a <laughs> lot, uh, lot of work, and it seems like it was yesterday, so 20 years flew well, by pretty quickly. That's because a whole lot of brain cells have <laughs> yeah. also been, have been lost. I've seen some of the pictures from 20 years ago. It's frightening. <laughs> I think you still, those are still your promotional pictures that you <laughs> yeah. use, Whitey, when you go to events. <laughs> right. Say, Who's that well, you know, in your photos, you look 20 years younger. <laughs> you know, I just want to just point that out. Uh, you still look great. Well, you take a great picture. Uh, you know who else is great? Our great uh, sponsor, uh, Northern Brewer. Check yeah. Out Northern Brewer. They have a booth here. Uh, wander on by there. Tell them thank you for uh, uh, supporting the show so uh, you don't have to pay for those downloads. You get them for free, uh, all because of the fine people at uh, northernbrewer.com. Yeah. They've been um, with us a long time. Good guys. Right. Now, Chris, people ask me all the time, and I want you to answer this honestly. Uh, <laughs> well, they always say, did you ever think, you know, you'd, you'd be here after, after 10 years is what they ask me. It's always a difficult question to answer, like... I try to think back. You know, you started in your wish. trunk. Yeah. I started in my garage. And I do. I never really know how to answer it. I have to think back at that state of mind when, when you, right. you know, what do you think? Did you think the White, the White Labs would be where it is today? Did you have an idea? Certainly not. I, I think I was just uh, had enough uh, dumbness, you know, to not realize what I was getting into. Yeah. Which, in the way, I've been that kind of funny because it's kind of good. If I knew what I was doing, getting into and trying to create the sub-master plan, I'm not sure I would have done it. <laughs> right. Uh, but, you know, you just jump into it, and then you just go day to day, and um, and all of a sudden a lot of time goes by, and, and, and some great things have happened. So um, I just I didn't have that big plan in the beginning. What did you think your career path was going to be with your degree? Were you going to be a professor? Yeah, I thought I would, you know, go do a nice postdoc uh, at another lab outside of San Diego and then uh, join a, 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 a university or maybe the biotech industry. Uh, I'd done a small uh, internship at a company uh, up north in San Francisco called Genentech mm-hmm. before graduate school. And uh, maybe a company like that uh, would, would be something I would do. Uh, but then I fell in love with homebrewing. Yeah. Um, and thought it didn't take too many batches of homebrewing to go... <laughs> Maybe I should make yeast because right. I was already doing that in the lab, uh, making yeast for the research side. So. Okay. It was kind of a no-brainer at that point. Yeah. You're still a professor, though, now, aren't you? You teach sometimes? Well, uh, after I started White Labs, it was still pretty small. So then I took a position at UC San Diego in the chemistry department teaching some lab classes. And that was actually a full-time job, uh, according to them, because it had so many lab hours. But it was 
teaching doesn't take that much time, right? So I still was able to work on White Labs. So I did that for six or seven years, six years maybe, and then eventually had to let that go as White Labs got bigger. And I've gone back to UCSD now as an extension uh, instructor. Okay. So it's not part of the main campus, but it's the extension where the new uh, uh, brewing and fermentation courses are for uh, that UCSD started. So a lot of universities are starting these programs uh, to teach brewers because we need more than two schools sure. uh, with all the breweries opening up these days. So UCSD started one that is traditional night courses. Like, that's how the other extension classes run. Not six months, you know, nine to five, which is great, but they did it more on the old, uh, that model where you take a class in yeast at night, you get a few units for that, you take another one in brewing technology, you get, and then after, say, 30 units, you get a certificate. Got it. Okay. So it can take a couple of years in the UCSD program to get the certificate, but it's all at night. Okay. Nice. So I'm doing that. The class just ended. Uh, we had the final last week. Some of those students are here. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> are you a tough professor or are you a pushover? Um, I try to be fair. Oh, so, he, he, I imagine he beats him to death. <laughs> no. Everybody. I with him with a yeast book. Uh, he's, he's, he's a taskmaster. Yeah. He's like, no, oh, no, no, that's not, that's not right. Sorry. Everybody that's new, I think, tends to be a harder instructor because you've just finished <laughs> graduate school or something, and you know, you're trying to hold everybody to certain standards, maybe your standards or the information you've learned. And I think what, I, what I've learned, I think other people sort of learn, is you have to, A, be a little easier on some exams and things like that, and B, do a better job of teaching it. <laughs> so I've tried to do both of those things. Uh, and the courses I've taught, being chemistry labs and, and yeast and things like that, uh, I tend to have higher grades anyway because it's more participatory. Okay. Uh, so, for example, this class, uh, usually I get some A's, B's, and C's. This class I just finished had an equal number of A's and B's. So you're so saying if, you're, if your students participate, <laughs> they'll get a better grade. Yes. <laughs> well said. Yeah. <laughs> However, I'm, I'm starting to understand. Yes. Not if you see my class. <laughs> participate in, you know... The lab work and things like that. That's what I'm saying. Yes. That's what I'm saying. Uh, Ask questions. I was not applying anything else. We do a lot of workshops. I try to get the students talking to each other because they can't just, you know, sit through three hours of lecture all the time, right? Hmm. Brewers always want to do things like this and get in small groups and talk about um, different yeast ideas. Mm -hmm. I try to do that every class because the extension classes I always had there were in Spanish or something else. And it was a lot of, especially in foreign languages, there was a lot of group work. Mm-hmm. So I've tried to bring that to the yeast and fermentation side. Okay. Let people work together. Bring, bring all your your people together. Yeah. Have them work. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know you like to teach, and I know you love to talk about yeast. In fact, uh, Chris is a friend of mine, so sometimes we hang out socially, and uh, we still talk about fucking yeast. Uh, <laughs> so that's why we invited you on the program today. This, of course, is the Brewing with Style show, where we typically focus on the style of beer. All right. But uh, every now and then, we uh, you know break out of the mold a little bit. We wanted to talk about how yeast relates to beer styles. Uh, certain styles can't even be made without a specific uh, strain of yeast. Well, I, I, I think every style has a specific strain. Every style. Really? And I think it's impossible to make uh, a beer style or something to style without uh, a specific yeast. I would argue that yeast is, you know, the fundamental underpinning of any style. And it's not the ingredients or this, that. You know, it, 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 it's the yeast that really make uh, the majority of contribution to beer style. 
and that's that's one of the reasons it's so so important. I mean, you probably agree with that, Chris. Yeah, I mean, I think we are. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm just shaking my head. Yes, because uh, I'm mean, trying to think of an example where that's not the case. Right. Well, the funny thing about that is you can make any beer with any yeast, right? And you'll make a beer. Um, you but can make beer with bread yeast. Exactly. It tastes horrible, but you can do it. <laughs> right. But for the the brewers that are trying to create something and try to create the best flavors possible, make traditional styles and make new ones, those all require different yeasts because. Yeast makes so much flavor and aroma, tremendous amounts of flavor and aroma to beer uh, get, you know, that you taste in beer. Uh, even if you mix yeast strains together, you get different flavors. I mean, that's how subtle it is. Mm-hmm. How many flavor compounds do yeast produce? Uh, over 500 flavor and aroma compounds. Most of those are more aroma, like esters and things like that. If you look at a, a beer flavor wheel, about 70 or 80% of those descriptions from a sensory perspective are yeast-derived. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. otherwise, our ingredients are pretty simple. Malt and hops. Hmm. You know what barley, malted barley tastes like. You know what hops can taste like. Of course, we're getting new and new varieties, which is great. Uh, but they're pretty much one, uh, there's one way those flavors go. Right. And then yeast take all of that and turn it into fruitiness and acids and uh, lots of uh, other compounds to, if it's Britannomyces or something like right. that. Right. It's so. not like uh, the malt and hops and water and all that don't have right. an effect. It's that the yeast is going to transform that that base right. that you're giving it and change it in ways that, you know, when 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 people use um, when we we're talking on uh, the clones uh, thing, uh, Amal was doing uh, yesterday. Mitch Steele and I were there, and um, there was a comment made about uh, how it tasted like there may be some some British crystal malts in. Uh, the uh, the Stone IPA, uh, you know, a light colored one, and, uh, and and what we said was, well, you know, um, when you use an English kind of yeast, that English character can make your ingredients taste more English. You yeah. know, you get this perception that oh, that must be English crystal. No, it's the esters that that the yeast have provided. The yeast have made that seem more English. It's true. Uh, I had that experience with our Burton Ale yeast. I tasted a beer one time, and it really hit me. I, I you know, it, it came from Burton. Bass Brewery came from Burton. Uh, so likely that this, uh, that's not where I obtained it from. Bass, for example, but they, they probably use this yeast. But it didn't really occur to me until I was tasting a beer, uh, for, I think from our tasting room, made with the Burton Ale yeast. And it tasted just like bass. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. recipe was right to make it just taste like bass, but it was like the oxidized bass flavor from the U.S. that you almost think is just something about the transportation. Actually, some of that came from the yeast because this beer made the few days before that had that same kind of character. Um, And, you know, there wasn't other English sort of ingredients in there. There wasn't floor malted barley or mm-hmm. uh, English hops, and yet that yeast contributed all this bass-like character to it. Wow. Well, and uh, we were talking earlier with uh, Matt from Virginia about uh, yeasts and styles and things like that. We were talking about you know making uh, you know American ales like the Shoots or uh, you know Stone or some of these places where they're using a yeast that has some you know Britishness in its origin, and it. Um, you know, they ferment with it in a way that just adds, you know, keeps it still like a clean American beer, but has some additional character. Uh, and I would say, you know, a lot of yeast will even affect, um, you know, mouthfeel and body of a beer as well. Right. You know, it's, it's something, you know, a choice that you make. Um, uh, you know, all these, especially if you're just trying to do new American styles, I guess you could use 
any yeast and you know make it in a way add a ton of hops and just call it American. Um, but uh, it, it's interesting to me that uh, you know there's some styles I, I I just can't imagine. People will say to me, well, you know, I want to make a Dusseldorf Alt. Can't I just use you know Calais? I'm like, well, I mean, you, you, I guess you sort of can, but. It's really not going to turn out as a good alt. Right. Uh, can't I just use, uh, you know, I'm going to make this. Can't I just use uh, that? Uh, I want to make a, a wit beer. Can't I just use, you know, 530? I'm like, no. I mean, it's not, it's it's more than just, I'm going to use wit spicing and I'm going to use, uh, you know, a 01. That's not a wit beer. It's without the fundamentals of the yeast. For me, I'm that's where I, I pretty much draw the line. It depends what it tastes like in the end, but uh, you know that's really the most important thing to me. Yeah, and you can take these different yeast strains, and you can also, with temperature uh, control and, and some other parameters, you can kind of direct their contribution in a different way if you want to, too. As you were mentioning with the English-style yeasts, uh, people in the beginning um, would... I think even the way I would talk about it in the beginning of, of White Labs are those are the yeast strains that make more fruitiness. Those are the yeast strains that can give you some vacinal. But there's a lot of breweries and homebrewers using those strains and making very clean beers because they're fermenting cooler. They're fermenting at 62 or 64 degrees instead of 68. And um, they're giving a proper diacetyl rest because you can always reduce diacetyl with just giving it more time. And then you've got a clean-tasting beer that has a slightly different flavor profile than the other strains uh, but doesn't taste as English because you... Mm-hmm fermented at cooler temperatures than traditionally was done with those strains. So fermentation behavior also plays a big role in, um, you know, strains-specific flavors for strain-specific styles. Yeah. 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 I'll tell you what. I want to take a short break, and when we come back, I want you to explain to me how... You know, we, we we hear the story of how beer styles evolved here and there, and it's all about well, it's the water and this and that. You know, tell I want you to tell everybody how the yeast evolved to become these strain specific yeast for these specific styles across the world. Okay. All right. So let's take a short break, and we'll hear more from Chris right after this. Are you looking for a simple brewing system that's great for all grain brewing, but everything on the market seems to be full of compromises? Blickman Engineering has the answer. The Blickman Brew Easy All Grain Brewing System. The Brew Easy is a complete system with easy upgrades and a beautiful compact design, perfect for any size brewing location. At its core, the Brew Easy is built on two gorgeous Blickman Boilermaker brew kettles, a high-temperature March pump, and either a top-tier gas burner or the new boil coil electric heater. The Brew Easy adapter lid allows the pots to stack on top of each other, forming an efficient, strong, and compact brewing setup that comes in 5, 10, and 20 gallon batch sizes. Upgrade your Brew Easy system with full automated control by adding a Blickman Tower of Power temp controller and make moving around easy with the Blickman kettle cart. The Brew Easy is modular. If you already own a Boilermaker kettle, you can build your Brew Easy by purchasing just the modules you need. The new Brew Easy all grain brewing system. See it today. At BlickmanEngineering.com and brew with Blickman quality on your new Brew Easy. Since the first time the Brewing Network microphones turned on, more beer was behind it. More Beer sponsors the programming on the BN because, like you, they love brewing. And like the Brewing Network, they love sharing their knowledge. MoreBeer.com isn't just a website to place your next equipment or ingredient order. 
MoreBeer.com also gives you access to free beer information that will make you a better brewer. Go to MoreBeer.com and click into the Learning Center. You'll find podcasts, technical facts, video tutorials, and more, including access to The Buzz, More Beer's social network of more than 5,000 members. And some of them might even be crazier about beer than you are. Get over to MoreBeer.com today and take advantage of The Buzz, The Forum, The Learning Center, and make sure you're signed up to receive the newest More Beer catalog. More Beer, bringing you absolutely everything for beer making. When I order a beer, I want my server to know more about it than I do. I want someone who enjoys good beer and loves helping others enjoy it too. I want someone who knows how to pour a perfect pint for every beer style. I want a Cicerone. The Cicerone Certification Program is creating the type of people who help you enjoy great beer. Home brewers and craft beer lovers know beer is more flavorful and complex than ever, and it takes some serious knowledge to store and serve beer right. Cicerones know beer. There are three levels in the Cicerone Program. Certified Beer Server, Certified Cicerone, and Master Cicerone. Cicerones are truly the sommeliers of beer. The best beer locations have a certified Cicerone on staff. Relaxed and unpretentious. Cicerone are tested on storing and serving beer, beer styles, flavor and tasting, the brewing process and ingredients, and pairing food with beer. Learn more about your next beer guide at Cicerone.org. Certified Cicerone, because it takes top talent to present a perfect pint. Your brewing water can be a mystery. If it's good enough to drink, it's good enough to brew with, right? We all know to perfect certain styles of beer, proper water chemistry is vital. But running water tests can be complicated and expensive, but not anymore. Industrial Test Systems is proud to introduce the new Smart Brew Water Testing Kits, incorporating the exact iDip Smart Photometer System. The only photometer on the market that harnesses the power of the smartphone and runs water tests without you doing a pile of calculations. The iDip features two-way Bluetooth communication with the brain of the system, which is its own multilingual app. This allows limitless possibilities, including lab accuracy, free upgrades, test customization, over 35 available, mobile sharing, and more. You can keep a detailed history of your results. Email your water report to other brewers or share it on social media. Visit smartbrewkit.com now and learn more about the iDip photometer and all the tests it can do for you. Beer tasting games that train your palate, a brewery locator, and the brand new interactive beer style guide. These are just a few of the awesome things you'll find on craftbeer.com. The style guide is a beautiful example of technology in beer. Browse beer style families or turn on the automatic beer style finder and explore beer through color, bitterness, ABV, aroma, and flavor. It's really the coolest way to explore every beer style besides having them all in front of you. Go to craft beer.com and click on beer styles to start the guide plus enjoy the rest of craftbeer.com the brewers banter blogs beer education how to host a beer tasting and the invaluable draft quality manual tons of great content that makes your beer better visit the new craftbeer.com right now and explore the website that brings you all the passion camaraderie and creativity of the craft beer community craftbeer.com celebrating the best of american beer now back to Brewing with Style. All right, we're back. We're here live, NHC 2015. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. My, my favorite beer event in the world. 
is the National Homebrewers Conference. So much fun. It's got to be the largest collection of homebrew in the world at any one time. When there's club night and there's all those kegs of homebrew, tell me where you've ever seen more homebrew <laughs> right. in one place. Well, yeah. in my garage. <laughs> uh, Every now and then. Yeah. Well, Whitey's like us, Jamil. He never misses a conference. Uh, right. He's been yeah. going to it. Uh, how, how many years have you been going? I'm, I might have first met you at a conference even. Yeah, maybe Cincinnati. Florida, before. For, oh, yeah. For, well, well, well before. Wasn't yeah. It? Yeah, actually. So okay. how, many, how many years have you been coming? Do you know? Uh, the late 90s, middle 90s. Okay. No. Um, I was thinking of that with the Craft Brewers Conference that this Brewers Association puts on as well. And uh, my first one was 97, and I haven't missed another one. So wow. I think it was the same with the Homebrew Conference. That's cool. Um, it used to be a lot smaller, right? This Homebrew uh, Conference would have a couple hundred people, and uh, mm-hmm. you know we'd set up a little table with some flyers on it or something about White Labs and walk away. <laughs> um, and have some fun. That's pretty much how it is. I mean, <laughs> right. That's how the BN does it. One of the early ones away. I went yeah. to in Michigan it was near Detroit. Uh, I never left the hotel the whole time either. I thought afterwards, like, I should have seen a little of the town. But, you know, now I've been back. Um, and you realized, yeah, you should have stayed in the hotel. <laughs> you know, that was the right move? No? Is that what you're uh, if you get shown around by the right people, uh, you yeah, know, some good things to see, uh, I think. <laughs> but now this show is massive. It feels like a little mini trade show. I mean, we right. do have kind of a trade show here, a lot of homebrew. Uh, it's gotten a lot, of great se- a lot of great seminars now. And I certainly like when it comes to San Diego because I can just uh, – I take a taxi over here. I don't drive over here, but uh, I do, do stay at home and take a taxi. Nice. I first met you in um, uh, at MCAB in uh, Berkeley in uh, 2001 or 2000. Wow. Yeah. Long time ago. And um, I recall that... A constant stream of people came up to you and said, where's this yeast from? Where'd you get that yeast from? Where did you get, uh, you know, 830? Where did you get uh, 530? What brewery did you take this from? Yeah. And uh, you were very polite and said, "Uh, no, well, you know. uh, uh," And I had to tell someone, I said, look, what you want to do is ask them, if I wanted a character similar to Chimay, which of your yeast do you think would give me the closest representation of a similar flavor? Yeah. <laughs> I said, that's the question to ask them. Because then you can answer it, right? Right. Probably, right. yeah. Yeah. So Pro- similar. What's well, a yeast similar. that's similar to you? Right. Makes these characters, yes. Well, and I, I find, you know, strains that are supposed to be the same from different suppliers... They actually perform differently and taste differently. It depends yeah. on what kind of selection process happens at the at the yeast supplier, and uh, you know how it's grown up and all that. I, I find a uh, you know some of the newer suppliers that are coming on um, commercially. I, I'm sorry to say, but it, it just doesn't compare to what I get from White Labs. And I'm you know I'm always interested in trying stuff, but. I ended up dumping uh, about twelve thousand dollars in beer after oh, no. uh, after, oh, wow. after using. It was like, well, you know, we'll just try and see how it turns out. And giant mistake. You went away from me for a batch, huh? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'll show hey, you. I don't know. Maybe maybe you weren't uh, giving me all the tender cuddling I need. That's probably no, true. No, no, no. I, I think 
you know, a lot of times, and it's it, like I said at the beginning of my talk the other day, people assume that you give me yeast and that, you know, I am just a shill for White Labs, which nothing could be further from the truth. I, I use your products because it's the best I can get. And, um, you know, it's a quality product, makes you great beer. And so, but if I don't try other stuff, then, yeah, in a way, I end up just becoming a show for White Labs. So yeah. I need to try all these other products, and I need to give it a go, even though it ends up costing me tens of thousands of dollars. I've got to give it a shot, and, and then I can honestly say, well, I'm using the best thing for my beer. And yeah. so as long as you keep producing the best, I'll keep using That's all i got to say, man. Sounds good. Yeah, we work on trying to make great yeast every day, and it is difficult to make. There's no one way to make it. There's right. no one way to feed it with, what you know, malted barley or something else, how many days you're going to grow it, how what the cycle is. I mean, everything can be different from mm-hmm. lab to lab. And we think uh, we've got a good process, and we keep trying to make it better. Uh, and even acquiring the strains, you know, I slowly acquired them while I was in graduate school, and I tried to build my own interesting yeast bank that wasn't just pulled from Y-East or whatever might be available at the time uh, because I, I wanted them to be different. Uh, so, right, right. Um, so I'd acquire them from a lot of different yeast banks. And you have to be fairly far back in the, in the history of the strain, I think, to get something stable. You know, if you, if you say, okay, uh, you want the yeast from Chimay mm-hmm. and you get it from a bottle of beer, that might be fine for making a batch of homebrew, but that wouldn't be good for the stability and characters I would want for a yeast strain. Uh, so I wouldn't get a yeast strain from Chimay from a bottle, for example. Mm-hmm. I'd track down the, the you know the lab where it might be in, the a brewer that might be retired and talking about it. You know, I mean, those are mm-hmm. the kind of detective work this that I was imp- able to do. This is an important distinction because I think that that people maybe think that you just oh I'll just travel to uh, Belgium and buy some bottles of beer and then I'll be able to produce their yeast. Right. Uh, and you're saying that that's just that's not no. the quality sample that you need. No, they, they can get you one-off batches, right? But it's not uh, quality. And I, I kind of learned that early on. They were just too too much in a mutated state, you know, the strains that are too far from that uh, beginning stage. So I would spend those times meeting people that knew that kind of information rather than trying to collect yeast from a simple source. Uh, once in a great while, a brewer would say, hey, here's some yeast, enjoy it. Uh, but that wasn't very, that didn't happen very often. Okay, yeah. Well, and uh, so, you know, getting back to what we were talking about, uh, you know, these these different strains that uh, have developed, you know, uh, these these Belgian strains, uh, wit beer, yeah. um, you know, alt beer, all that stuff, uh, you know, the British ales. How did those come to pass? Because, I mean, we understand, um, you know, uh, you know, um, like a Dortmund or Export and some of the mineraliness. You know, they talk about the water is is one of the driving factors. Uh, uh, you know, some some things with uh, you know ice block and freezing, or you know, a lot of things depending on you know the the situation around them, the ingredients available. But the yeast, you know, they all just pulled the yeast out of the air initially, yeah? Yes, initially um, it happened through air, but I think it didn't take very long for people to realize, hey, if I add yeast from batch to batch, I get a successful fermentation. Mm-hmm. Whatever this sludge is that's going from batch to batch makes my beer better. And rather than waiting days for little bits of yeast to tr- uh, trickle in from the air, uh, I could just uh, infuse it with the, old, with the last beer and it would work. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but that process then created a yeast handling 
aspect for the brewer that they would do it over years and years and years and then hundreds of years down the line the you know the family tree kept uh, people kept brewing beer and the family tree of yeast kept changing um, and there was a lot of house yeast developed throughout the you know Europe being the main center of brewing through the Middle Ages uh, where a lot of uh, the techniques and, and I think the yeast strains were developed um, and so we're doing a you know a big genetic analysis uh, on uh, 200 yeast strains, 100 of ours and 100 from a Belgian lab, and it's become a big project involving lots of people, home brewers, uh, companies that want to just get the information out about some of their equipment, have pitched in on this, and we're trying to get the full genome sequence of brewer's yeast sequence, which has never been done before. Wow. So the questions about evolution we don't really know yet because we don't know the full genome, and when you start mapping the full genome of organisms, it has this happened through many, many different fields. People learn so much more about why those organisms do what they do, what they're related to, and the, uh, that's why I, uh, the, you know, naming names of certain strains will change more and more probably when we find out some lager yeast, maybe ale or ale yeast, or there's hybrids there that we didn't mm-hmm. know about. But the biggest thing, I think, from an interesting perspective, will be the evolutionary uh, things that we'll learn mm-hmm. how similar certain strains are, how, to, how distinct certain strains are. We already know from doing this uh, work that the, our uh, German ale Kolsch yeast is very genetically distinct. It's not like the ale strains. It's not like mm-hmm. the lager strains. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is a unique strain, right? It's kind of lager-like. It's not very fruity. Uh, and there's a genetic reason for that, it seems, that this is some kind of... Uh, Outlier. Now, you uh, cannot for, make Kolsch without Kolsch yeast. Right. I, I absolutely freaking guarantee you, you know, people want to make it with this, that, the other thing. And it's like, no, you need Kolsch yeast. You can't, there's there's no dry yeast to make Kolsch yeast or make a Kolsch. Yeah, I'm a, sorry. You have to use uh, liquid culture Kolsch yeast to make, actually make Kolsch. It's a really unique, delicate flavor profile, isn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. Now, through this work, do you think you're going to get to a point where you can go back and say, well, this is the Adam and Eve of, of yeast? This is the, the the start to the whole thing? Uh, perhaps, you know, because uh, you're creating you, a you'll religion. see how the genetic material moves through the yeast strains that we're sequencing. Uh-huh. Right, right? And right. that moving through tells you something about when it started. Um, you know, for example, what interests me a lot is the phenolic characters uh, mm-hmm. characteristics mm-hmm. of yeast. Uh, all the hefeweizen yeast and some of the wild yeast produces phenols. Right. Right? That's kind of like your inbred cousins. Right, right. That, that have so, those weird, you know. But that weird is that actually the most common trait of Saccharomyces cerevisiae. They make phenols. Uh-huh. The ale strains that we use and the lager strains don't make phenols. So that's a mutation in the phenolic off-flavor genes. So there's a mutation there that prevents the phenolics from being made. And I think it's interesting that it's both in ale and lager. So whenever this lager yeast was created through natural hybridization, that was after the phenolic off-flavor mutation. Mm-hmm. So people in the 1800s, you would assume, and maybe earlier, depending on when lager yeast were created, we're making beer with phenolic negative strains, making beer somewhat like we have today. Mm-hmm. So how long ago was that? Middle Ages? Earlier? Mesopotamia? I don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of a question I have about the, the, the origins of these things. So, so if, if some of these style origins, and certainly these yeast origins, were this happy accident, right? Where, like you said, where people just realized it would go better if I stopped just waiting for stuff to fall in. I just put the sludge into the next beer, right? So a Saison or, or whatever Belgian beer. This is a happy accident. Are there, are there yeast strains maybe that are newer that were not an accident, that were developed specifically for a certain thing? Like, well, now we see new hop varieties, right? Breeders right. are out there making, you know, they're, they're 
scientifically creating new hop varieties right. for us. Is this happening in yeast? Is there, are there examples of yeast? I think it, it's maybe happening every day and we're not noticing it because we don't have this full genome to look at. We have snippets from PCR. We do that at White Labs and other people do that you know, with brewer's yeast, but uh, you look at a small snippet of the DNA and you don't know the whole, how the whole genome is changing until you can sequence it. And even though Saccharomyces cerevisiae lab strains have been sequenced, the brewing strains are completely different animals, uh, so they haven't been sequenced. And um, So in the plant world, where they're, where they're taking these different genomes and, and creating new varieties, they have been sequenced. That's the advantage they exactly. have? Exactly. Those okay. have been sequenced. Those are easy. Those are straightforward. Brewer's yeast has multiple uh, chromosomes. They're uh, polyploid, so that's what makes it difficult. I that's see. what makes them stable as well. So, um, But it makes them very hard to sequence and, and mate and things like that. So, you know, if, if uh, most of the American breweries were started in the 1850s and beyond, right, the big breweries, and then you've got all sorts of craft breweries from before Prohibition and now the last 20 years, are you telling me none of these, you know, breweries have have no new yeast strains developed in these breweries. Right. American strains, maybe, if you will, and I think there have been. We just don't know what to call it. We don't know how different they are than the European ancestors. Okay. Through some information like this, we can learn that. And we can also learn, like, hey, somebody gets a new excellent strain from their backyard and they say, hey, this is a great new uh, strain we could use for doing this. Now we could know, is it actually a new strain or did it float over from somebody else's brewery? Right. Right? So now you could really identify it as new and unique. See, this oh. is something that comes up in our interviews with pro brewers all the time, where we're asking about different yeast strains or what yeast they use. And, and occasionally we get brewers go, you know, well, it's, it's proprietary. It's our house yeast. Yeah. And frankly, 90% of the time, I think they're full of shit. I think they just don't want to tell me they're using Cal Ale or whatever right. they're using. Right. I would agree with that. I'll, but I'll tell you, uh, at Heretic, we had uh, uh, cultured some yeast from uh, Beardy's Beard. And uh, started growing that up. And uh, I believe, you know, there's phenolic positive. I think this was fecal positive. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think that that could have become our house yeast. And I'm just saying. So, we, as you know, the and, and maybe folks know the story, so forgive me if I'm repeating. But the Pac-Man, uh, not the Pac-Man, the, the Rogue yeast, John's, uh, John Meyer's beard yeast that right. he did. The story behind that's a cool story because Rogue was interested in, and of course, correct me if I'm wrong here, Chris, but Rogue was interested in finding out if there was a proprietary yeast anywhere in their brewery that they could then sort of make a house yeast. So they had White Labs take samples from all over the place, and they didn't find anything uh, viable that they could grow up for them. Uh, and as a joke, they were like, well, let's just take this piece of hair from John Meyer's beard. In the entire brewery, it's the only yeast you found that you could grow up into a viable yeast, right? Yeah, it was really, uh, we didn't expect that. We didn't go there to, to get some yeast from John Meyer's beard, but Neva Parker and I went there, and as you said, you know, we did this yeast collection, which was mostly a failure uh, in finding uh, yeast in the Newport area, but uh, was one of the brewers there that said, hey, uh, this would be funny. So we, we brought those plates back, and uh, it grew a, a nice yeast uh, that uh, fermented, right? There's lots of different yeast in the air. So we found lots of yeast in Newport, Oregon. We just didn't find anything that could make a decent beer, except the, the cell that we found in John Mayer's beard. Uh, and it made, you know, it's a wild, any yeast you're going to find in the environment is going to be kind of wild. So wild meaning make phenolics, you know, flavor. So you're going to make something of a Belgian style beer, some phenolics. But it was, the phenolics were pretty subdued. Now that may be a yeast uh, from the environment that uh, was in his beard for 20 years. Right. You know, and uh, had nutrients. He's saying he doesn't um, clean his beard. I know, it gets grosser he said the more he had I hear the story. it for 30 years. I don't know what that meant. 
Wow. He did say that. Maybe he just meant cutting it. But uh, So it could have been in there a long time. But, you know, if you watch anybody uh, with a big beard eat or drink something, half of that material is in their beard. Yeah. So it could have been from the beer he had the night before. Right, you know? right. It's hard to say without that genetic a tie-in of, well, wait, oh, you, it was, you had a brewer visiting you from Denver. It was their yeast, uh, and that was in your beard, and now you're making it. Or it's something completely unique that's been... Uh, sitting in your beard, adapting to the beer you've been drinking, right, <laughs> right, for twenty years. Just like uh, the, some of the best yeast you find for fermenting grapes are in the vineyards. We've got a great uh, uh, Pinot Noir yeast uh, that we we make for wineries, and that came from a vineyard because it gets acclimated to those those carbohydrates, those conditions. I see. It's just a happy environment for it. Yeah. Yeah. So it, with this genetic mapping that you're doing, you'd be able to look at something funny like this beard yeast and then discover actually if it was, if it was random right. or if it did come from another. Right. What we're able to do with the PCR tools of today is say it's not the normal rogue yeast. Yeah. Yeah. So we're able to say here, there's something from his beard that's not his rogue yeast, but we can't type it against every yeast out there with that. That would, I mean, we don't have the tools for that until the full genome sequencing happens. Uh, and I don't know what we're going to be able to do with it after we do the project. We're trying to uh, get a publication out, you know, this year, but we don't ha- we don't own the equipment. That, you know, these DNA sequencing machines are ten million dollars. Well, get we're- to work, man. <laughs> That's a drop in the bucket for White Labs. <laughs> we all know your your yeast only costs you a penny, and you're charging us all so yeah. much money. Yeah. <laughs> So fortunately, we can keep using it for free. Yeah, okay, we'll good. Yeah, okay. for beer, you know. Well, and this is, you know, you keep leveraging these uh, university relationships you have so yeah. that you can keep doing some great research. Yeah. Good work. I'll tell you what. Let's take a short break. And when we come back, uh, any of you folks want to ask questions of Chris White? Yeah. And we'll give All away right. some shirts and stuff, too. Oh, yeah. So there you go. If you have good questions, we'll milk it and give you some shirts. And <laughs> there we go. There you go. We'll get more show out of it. All right. We'll be back right after this. A few things happened 30 years ago. ARPANET migrated to TCPIP, and the Internet was born. Revenge of the Jedi was renamed Return of the Jedi and opened in theaters. Mila Kunis and Emily Blunt were born, beginning a rad fantasy in my mind. But all of that pales next to the fact that HopTech opened its doors and began blowing homebrewers right out of their mash tuns. HopTech doesn't fuck around. Real people shipping awesome shit straight to you. Their new website is fast and easy to navigate. Or just call 800-379-4677 and let badass bitch Jade and the gadget guy Roberto blow their warm load of customer service all over you. So visit the site or visit Visit the store in Dublin, California, and support those that support you. Get your brewing on at hoptech.com. Williams Brewing is your online resource for prompt delivery of quality home brewing supplies. Since 1979, Williams Brewing has offered the finest equipment and the freshest ingredients, backed by the best customer service in the business. Do you like to mash using efficient fly sparging, but would like an easy way to heat your strike and sparge water? Enter the new Brewer's Edge Electric Mash Water Heater, a plug-in, anywhere, precisely controlled heater 
for strike and sparge water. Ditch the fumes and second burner and make mashing easy. Go to williamsbrewing.com today and browse their vast selection. That's williamsbrewing.com. Orders placed by 4 p.m. Pacific Time weekdays ship the same day. Brewing is easy the Williams way. Craft beer and kick-ass music. This is the year to attend the 20th Annual Mammoth Festival of Beers and Bluesapalooza in beautiful Mammoth Lakes, California. Enjoy more than 80 breweries like Mammoth Brewing, Anchor, Fireman's, Bear Republic, Anderson Valley, Stone, Green Flash, Firestone Walker, Sierra Nevada, Lagunitas, Deschutes, and many, many more. On stage, you'll hear Trombone Shorty and Orleans Avenue, Johnny Lang, Robert Cray, Robin Ford, Ruthie Foster, Carolyn Wonderland, Tommy Castro and the Pain Killers, the Sly Brothers, and much more. It's the most incredible lineup ever to take a mammoth stage. Don't miss the 20th annual Mammoth Festival of Beers and Blues Palooza, Thursday, July 30th through Sunday, August 2nd. Tickets and more information at mammothbluesbrewsfest.com or call 888-825-5484. Tickets for some events will sell out early. Get yours at mammothbluesbrewsfest.com or call 888-825-5484 today. Your support of the Brewing Network means everything to us. We couldn't produce shows without you. And we love giving you something extra for that support. Like Brew Your Own Magazine. You already know it's a great brewing magazine full of recipes, equipment how-tos, discussions of beer styles, and brewing techniques. Whether you're new to brewing and just starting out or you're an old pro, you'll always learn something from the articles in Brew Your Own. Plus, there are amazing special issues like plans for building a Brutus 10 system, 250 classic clone recipes, and the Home Brewer's Answer Book. Brew Your Own Magazine and BYO.com are awesome resources for any brewer. Whether for yourself or as a gift, when you subscribe or resubscribe from the Brewing Network homepage, you directly support programs like this. Get a great magazine and support the Brewing Network. Subscribe to Brew Your Own right from the brewingnetwork.com. Say hello to my little friend. You've heard about White Labs Pure Pitch Yeast. Pure Pitch is yeast grown right in its final packaging. That means yeast that has never been exposed to the environment. And White Labs Pure Pitch Yeast for homebrewers is now available to everyone at homebrew retailers nationwide. Easy to use, perfectly sized, and ready to pitch. White Labs yeast packaged using their FlexCell process ensures the purest yeast on the market. Visit whitelabs.com to learn more about Pure Pitch, Flex Cell technology, and how it's created. Then visit a homebrew retailer near you for your own perfectly sized package of Pure Pitch yeast. And you can say hello to your own little friend. www.whitelabs.com Now back to Jamil, Tasty, and Blise. It's Brewing with Style. Good of you to show up for the show there, Tasty. Uh, a little little late night there at Club Night? Or yeah, I had that going. Uh, yeah, I had a little leisurely morning. Uh, a little mix-up in the schedule. I, uh, uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, I got an email, and I put it in my calendar. Then I guess the time changed. 
<laughs> it's the time change. Uh, it's from NorCal to SoCal. Northern California, Southern California. I was California having a change. nice little lunch when uh, you guys started the show. <laughs> lunch right. sounds good. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm all good. Okay. Yeah, be nice to have Chris lunch. here. Chris here's working. Right. Yeah, yeah, well, I, I owe you one, Chris. Uh, I'll eat later. Yeah, maybe three thirty. Yeah, you brought nothing for everybody else. <laughs> no, but I have friends over there that have a lot of beers. So. Well, I do need yeah. some of that actually. So, you know, try the uh, saison right it's right over there at the. Uh, There's a lot of beer at on Nico's the store, place. But not much food. There you no go. Food. All right, so uh, we got an opportunity to ask some questions of Chris White, and I will force him to answer them. I will twist his nipples. He won't say it depends. It depends. Next. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Let's go with Matt. Hey, I'm Matt from Virginia, and you've touched on this a little bit already, but got kind of a chicken and egg question of uh, beer styles and yeast and, you know, uh, naturally present yeast influencing a certain country or region of the world to make a certain beer. And do we have any information on that? Is that going to require a lot more genome sequencing? I, I think it does tie into that genome sequencing. Uh, some of that's been done in uh, in vineyards, for example. And they, they look at vineyards in Napa and find different uh, sets of microbes in one side of the valley to the next side of the valley. When people used to think, well, this valley might have this set of microbes, this valley might have this. And even within that valley from vineyard to vineyard, there's different consistent uh, types of microbes. And you look at the breweries, even in a big brewing city, that might mean the microbes in one brewery uh, adapted differently than the, the ones in the next brewery. So even in a region, you might have different yeast being developed if they stayed in that little brewery and were repitched and repitched and repitched, adapted to that person's process, fermentation temperature, alcohol production, and then the raw ingredients uh, that they're using as well, and the water, uh, the environment. So uh, the organisms adapt. Microorganisms adapt. That's how they survive. Brewer's yeast is a little slower to do it because it's been loaded up with all this DNA from some mutation, you know, from some um, uh, self-hybridization kind of events that were happening over time. But uh, when that happened, had, had Brewer's yeast already kind of developed into what it is today before that happened? We don't know. Sorry to pick it back again. Is there something like, you, 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 in humans, we can follow like the mitochondrial DNA to to learn a lot about our ancestry? Is there yeah. something like that in yeast? Yeah. Yeah, you can do that with yeast as well. Uh, the mitochondria are not uh, very active in brewer's yeast because they're not doing aerobic respiration, but they're still there, and they're, that DNA is an important component of yeast. So, yes, that could be looked at, too. All right. All right. Some more questions? Next. Hey, guys. As far as I know, there's the two main equations for yeast pitch calculations, and I think yours is the higher one, and then there's another one that says you need less. Is it better to err on one side than the other? Is it better to be slightly over or better to be slightly under, or does it matter that much? Are they that far off? And if I can piggyback on this, do the two of you arm wrestle and fight about the difference in the in T- how T- many fight. cells are, are, are uh, needed? No, the, fundamentally, you're always better off with more yeast. So here's the thing. You don't want to cheap out on yeast. You don't want to say, oh, yeah, I could get by with a little less, a little less, a little less, and then you've wasted an entire batch of ingredients. So I love the fact that people that come up with these calculators and they're using math and saying, no, 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 this is the theoretical thing and that's fine. But what I, what I can guarantee you is there's never been anybody who's used my free calculator and said it ruined a batch because the numbers are wrong. 
the numbers are right. You're always better off airing a little little more yeast. The consequences of, of not pitching enough is dramatically worse than the consequences of pitching substantially more than, than you actually needed. So it's a safety thing. Why do you yeah, say? and I think Jamil and I are a lot closer on this than people would think because uh, uh, we're both touting this high millions of uh, cells per mil range. You know, not like, again, the wine industry or the distilling industry might be one or two million cells per mil. We're all talking about more than that. So these differences are actually fairly small in that overall world. Um, so airing on the high side is fine. You're not going to have problems. Jamil is a big proponent of pitching more yeast, uh, not insane amounts, just more. Uh, so, but as a producer, you know, it would make sense if we were the, doing the same thing, saying, hey, buy more yeast. And we're just kind of saying, hey, you don't have to always buy so much yeast. But if you want to, that's fine. Then, fall, you know, or reuse it and things like that he was talking about yesterday. But um, we're so showing that, you know, you don't, you know, the, you don't always need that much. Mm-hmm. Historically, people didn't use that much. This new homebrewing and craft brewing industry has created. We're kind of we doubled everything that people used to use. Mm. Um, so because we kind of started with the logger pitching rate number, and we've taken it in as our ale pitching rate number, and now increased the logger pitching rate number. Again, nothing really wrong with that. You ensure you're going to have more yeast for a successful fermentation, but you always need it. Certainly, uh, when you're looking at beers, lighter kind of beers like twelve Plato beers, I think you don't. Uh, but we're not all making lower gravity beers, right? So when commercial breweries buy yeast from us, they often start with a lower gravity beer in their lineup and then build the culture up and then use it for a while. But in home brewing, a lot of times you're just doing all these one-off beers, and sometimes they're bigger beers. And, 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 and uh, so that's where that calculator really comes into play because it's got gravity in there. Uh, it's got, you know, viability of the yeast in there. That is also some experiments Jamil did, but you can also put your own viability mm-hmm. number in that you've determined right. under the microscope. Well, and in I the, always say the, the, the proper pitching rate is the one that gives you the result you want. So it doesn't really matter what anybody comes up with. You know, use the rate that you feel is best. And I, I can tell you for a fact, you can take any White Labs pack and, you know, ferment a batch of yeast with it or a batch of beer with it. You know, it's, there's no problem with that. The, the, my worry is in there's only so much Chris can control, right? He can control what White, White Labs does. And to almost, to some extent, maybe even what some of the retailers do. But you know, once it leaves their control, you don't know for a fact how that thing was handled. And you don't know how long that, you know, it sat out warm before they put it in the fridge. You don't know, you know, and in, in any incidents you had bringing it home. So... I like to err on the, the side of caution. Make a starter or, you know, repitch, repitch more. And all I can say is that, you know, you want to use numbers that guarantee you're going to have great success. So. In, in all the years that I've known Jamil and people giving him beers to taste, I've only heard you say that overpitching yeast was a problem once. One time, and it was with Chad. Chad had lost his job and was brewing constantly. He was brewing like every day at home, and he was brewing really good beer. Mm-hmm. And I remember one day you, you were at the house, you came out for a show, and you were tasting the beer, and you said, look, everything's great, but there's a little something wrong with this beer, and the only thing I can think that it is is that you might actually be over-pitching. Mm-hmm. So it's so uncommon. You've, I've never heard you give that right, criticism right. before. So... 
Yeah, you really, it's hard to overpitch unless you're repitching, right? That's where it can come into uh, account because when you do a fermentation, yeast blossoms into five times more yeast. So if you use all of that slurry, for example, just adding wort back onto the slurry, you'll have, a, you'll have too much yeast. Okay. And then if you do that a couple more times, the yeast can really get, just dive in viability because it's actually not growing. Oh, and I then see. then you'll have a lot of dead yeast dead in that yeast. They're fighting for resources, basically. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, any other questions out there? And uh, let's question? get come over here, to Jamie. We'll give you a shirt for that excellent question too. Uh, she'll get you the right size. Another question in the back. Somebody has a question. Come on up. Um, my question deals with if you want to brew a beer with multiple yeast strains, is it better to pitch them both at the start, or would you pitch one over another based on the characteristics that they're going to contribute to the beer? Yeah, I gave a talk on that a little bit yesterday, and I think there's there's two. Right. S- Sorry, I missed it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, just get the tape or, no, or whatever. No, no yeah. shirt for uh, you. <laughs> you know, uh, I think there's two uh, two ways of doing it. So if you want to have contribution of the flavors from both yeast strains, they must go in the beginning or five strains that you have because that the flavors develop in the first three days, right? Uh, three to four days. So if you add a strain later, there's no growth that's going to happen that's going to blossom into those flavors. So you need to add them in the beginning. The, if you add a strain later, you're going to get a functional component out of it, like a lower attenuation, higher, so a higher alcohol content, uh, maybe a flocculation improvement, uh, but not a flavor contribution. So, so maintenance would be add them later, but if you want flavor contributions, add them early. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Good sure. question. Go to the booth, see Jamie, get a shirt. Anybody else got a question? We got a little bit of time, maybe one more, if anyone's got some. Come on in. Good afternoon, gentlemen. A uh, real quick question about uh, pH and yeast. How um, does pH, or yeast affect the final pH? And i got a follow-up to that. I think it's pretty interesting that uh, it's not something that people would ask a lot about or think about. It is an interesting question. It's strain-dependent. Would you believe that? It actually is. Uh, we think it of some depends. Of the yes. <laughs> no, it, yeah, it depends on the strain because it's strain-dependent. Because, for example, when we take a wort and we separate it into four different fermenters, and we regularly do this at our little brewery here, uh, we put different yeast in there. They consistently will get to find all different pHs. Some of the Belgian strains about you know, 4.0, uh, and then some of the like California ale yeast will be closer to 4.5. So some of the wilder strains tend to go a little bit lower in pH, and they do that batch after batch. Uh, so they produce a little bit more acids, which is coming from metabolism. So it makes sense that we already know metabolism is different from strain to strain, creating different flavor compounds. It also affects pH. How that affects the beer from a sensory aspect uh, would probably be a better question for Jamil. Like, are you looking for a certain target of a pH? Yeah, it, it's huge, and it depends on what uh, you know what what you're trying to achieve with your beer. But so, certain beers, you know, you want more of a crispness, and a lot of times pH is is a, a critical factor in that. What's a crisp um, pH? What would that number be? Well, you know, generally lower lower fours, um, you know, starts to get into that territory. You get below four, it starts to get a little acidic and a little little uh, tart. Okay. Um, uh, you know, so it, it depends. Yeah, it depends on, uh, you know, the, the, the style that you're going for. Too, I've, too, some, I've made some too beers. Too high that... a pH, and it can feel right. kind of slack and yeah. and uh, not, 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 you know, not like it's, it, like it's unfinished. Yeah. I made some uh, beer once that was kind of flat, and I thought, like, you know, and I just out of curiosity, I measured the pH, and it was like, like, man, like almost like 4.9 or something like that. Uh, I'm like, oh, man, that's messed up. Mm-hmm. So I got some phosphoric acid and brightened the beer up. It tasted great. Hmm? Yeah, you can add it later. That's great. That's, that's, uh, people, that's something I think that's not 
a regular not, topic. Not regular, no, but you can do that. Yeah. So look at a can of soda. The ingredients are always listed like phosphoric acid. But then it's I would, a flavor enhancer. I would oh. think that that was, you know, a, a problem with fermentation. If it yeah, did, well, yeah, there was, low, yeah low, low, something low went wrong with the batch. Yeah, right, for sure. Right. The yeast died out. Didn't, didn't use the pitching rate calculator. I'm just. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm more down just over pitch. I, don't really, I, don't use, I never use the calculator. Do you have a tasty calculator? Yeah, I have a tasty calculator. It's just a measuring cup. Yeah, a bunch of it. I just put a bunch of it. <laughs> Any follow-up? Follow uh, just to follow-up, um, I tried the – I'd read some um, information from your website, and I tried the White Labs 300, and I thought, well, if I double-pitched a vial into a Weizen beer, I can get kind of a shandy effect. And so, I, you know, without doing any real calculations, I just did it, pitched two vials, checked the pH, and it came out at 4.0. Huh. And it has – everybody thinks it's a shandy, but it's, uh, it's a really pleasant beer, but I just kind of – you know, just tried it, and that's why I asked the question. You mean okay. you did it after fermentation? No, I just pitched two vials. I over basically pitched two vials oh, to I try to okay. see because I'd read an article you, you could drop a Weizen below four three, you know, based on yeast volume. I said, well, let's just try two vials straight out of the cabinet. Oh, and it worked I see. Out. So beautiful. There you go. All right, White. Thank you, sir. Thank you once again, and I'd like to say congrats again on twenty years of helping us out in this industry, man. I appreciate that. That's always cool. a pleasure. Yeah, I can do this all day. <laughs> he does like to talk about yeast, so if you ever see Chris around and you want to ask yeast questions, you shouldn't be shy. He'll, he'll talk your ear off about it, I guarantee you. Makes him feel useful. Just make sure it's Chris and not Mike. My favorite game to play at, uh, at NHC is, is it Chris or is it Mike? And uh, people are right 50% of the time. 50%. Yeah, Mike was here. Uh, he just left this morning. Oh, he went home. Yeah. Yes. Oh, I can't play it's Chris or Mike anymore. <laughs> game over. So your chances of it being Chris are... Probably like ninety something percent now. <laughs> well, I do have another brother here, John White. Is, oh, right, uh, is here, and uh, he yeah. looks like you guys too, even though he's not a twin. He does. He's look not like a twin. Him. He was born a year later. <laughs> we do there have another. Uh, there, see, look, he yeah. does look yeah. like a White, yeah. right? <laughs> uh, we do have another show coming up just after this, so if you want to stick around, but you can talk to the guys for a few minutes in between and and hang out with us, right, Jamel? Yep, we'll be here. Uh, thanks for coming down and, and enjoying the show. Thanks for enjoying the conference. If you enjoy this sort of stuff, I would say uh, make sure you check out our fine sponsors, uh, especially uh, Northern Brewer. they got a booth over here. Come, come by the booth and tell them how much you uh, you love that they pay for the show so you don't have to. Uh, if you're feeling extra supportive, I'd suggest walking right over here. Get yourself a fine shirt hoodie, hat, whatever from uh, the Brewing Network store. And you can even do it online, thebrewingnetwork.com slash store. When you buy that stuff, it goes to the bottom line. Any profits go to the bottom line of the Brewing Network and help tremendously in uh, paying for shows like this. So if you want to see it, keep going. Uh, get yourself some gear right away. All right. Uh, till then, everybody, brew strong. Yeah,